This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. And truth, wherever it may be. So a few weeks ago, uh, we took up the koan, uh, Shuzan and a staff, which is uh, the case, I believe, before this. And that goes, Master Shuzan held up his staff and showing it to the assembled disciples said, if you call this a stick, you are committed to the name. If you do not call it a stick, you deny, you deny it. So tell me, what will you call it? So I thought it would be interesting to take up this subsequent koan on a staff. And Master Basho here is not the famous Japanese haiku master. Uh, this is a Zen master uh, who was born in Korea and went to China um, and taught eventually in China. We're talking the 800s. Uh, not a lot is known about him. Um, so, of course, the topic of this, in one sense, seems to be a staff. And... Um, the whole of the Bodhidharma, the Buddha Dharma, really, is here. But it could be anywhere or in anything. Just happened to be using this in the last koan and to a certain extent in this koan. In realizing this, you're seeing beyond your thoughts, beyond your feelings. In realizing this, This is wherever your gaze and mind are. That's the whole thing. So what is realized in this practice of Zen Buddhism? What actually is realized in it? If you ask me, and since I'm writing the talk, I ask myself, how would I express it? What is my understanding? I would say, wherever I look, I see myself. That's one expression. There are others. But does that expression make it alive in me or you? Is that realization living? Is it vivid? Is it effective? And if so, what does that actually mean? How do we enter the stick of perspectives, so many endless perspectives, so many things, so many thoughts about things. How can I become curious of having my perspectives and thus perceiving this stick or anything else? And how, in doing so, I lose all other perspectives. I know my perspective. What about your perspective? You know, there's a famous story, I think it was about Bertram Russell, who was, I may not have this exactly right, who was asked to write a, an essay in college. I think it was a law student. Um, 
And every time I go in this direction, I wonder how many people here know who Bertrand Russell was. Uh, but he was arguably the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, English. And he was asked to write an essay about the, the laws of fishing. And I think it was between Canada and the United States. And to take that up because it was controversial at the time, apparently. And so he did. Uh, except he wrote it from the perspective of the fish. And that is a very, you know, I remember when I was asked to write an essay in freshman English in college, you know, on the old kind of idiomatic question, you know, if the tree falls in the forest, is there anyone there to to hear it? And I, I wasn't quite that sophisticated, but I mentioned in my essay, you know, what about the perspective of the tree? innocently and kind of wise acidly. Uh, and because of that, the teacher was not very <laughs> more than that. <laughs> but there's a context as to who I was <laughs> at the time. So what about these other perspectives, which are not about abandoning our perspective? And how can we possibly know every perspective? These are interesting questions to me. And Dogen talks about this a lot in his writings, that you should, this kind of question, what about these other perspectives? And he has many contexts for it. And he says you should study this and study this and study this some more, which kind of hints this is an open-ended question that the answer is not in the answer. It's in the questioning. That any place you arrive in an answer, and this is a, a cue uh, a clue for those working on Mu. <laughs> you know, any place you arrive at an answer, it's probably not that answer. It's not the answer that will help you. It's in the questioning. So, um, how can I become curious in having my perspectives and thus receiving the stick or not having these perspectives and thus Losing that not having. Perhaps this is difficult to relate to. But we have to want to relate to it. So listen to what he says. If you have a staff or a stick, I will give one to you. If you have no stick, I will take it away from you. And the teachers frequently use this because the cuts, as it's called, is in their hands so it's available to use to teach with and point to. But don't be fooled. This koan is actually not about this. Normally, we might think, if you have something, I'll take it away. You know, in a spiritual practice, if you have something, we'll take it away. So you're not stuck on it. Right? That's how you normally think. You would think, if you have no staff, well, then I'll give you one. If you're lacking, I'll give you what you lack. That would not be a koan. That would be ordinary delusion. One way to understand this is if you have awakening, I'll give it to you. What would that mean? If you don't have awakening, perhaps if you think you can't awaken, or there's no such thing as awakening, Well, I'll take that away from you. What would that mean to you? How would that work? 
But the koan is clear. And again, I'll repeat it so we can follow it. If you have a staff, I'll give one to you. And if you have no staff, I'll take it away from you. And, you know, on Sundays when I work with a koan, I always have to be respectful of people who are here for the first time. And, you know, the analogy that comes to mind is if, uh, have you ever experienced stepping into a total immersion in a foreign language? And you step into the class, and the teacher says some equivalent of shalom, and then goes off on that. And you're sitting there, having been there, and wondering what the hell is he or she talking about. (laughs) And yet, there is a context, right? This is probably a greeting, um, probably some sense of intonation and something. So you are hearing something. I have told this story before. Uh, many years ago, I was on a pilgrimage to China with Kaplow uh, Roshi, and one of the members of our, one of the students with us was from, I believe, Chile, but it might have been a different South American country. He was, he was raised in New York City, and, you know, and although coming from a Catholic background, he attended yeshiva in Brooklyn, actually the yeshiva next to the high school I was going to, Erasmus Hall High School. Um, and so he spoke fluent Yiddish among many other languages. And we were in China, and we'd go to the markets, and he would negotiate in Yiddish. So here's this South American man with a Catholic and Jewish upbringing who was fluent in many languages, but not Chinese, speaking in Yiddish to um, Chinese campesinos, you know, people in the marketplace, who were very sophisticated negotiators, of course, as was he. And they communicated. There was no problem communicating. And I and Ahil would watch this. Yeah. And the transaction would happen. Communication was happening. Neither spoke the other's language. Both spoke the same language, though. And so koans are like that. They're going to challenge you in your ordinary way of thinking. And so if you approach it from our ordinary way of thinking, and if I were to load that, I'd say our deluded way of thinking. Deluded means separated from ourself, from reality, a space, um, thinking that I'm here and you're there, and that's the end of the story. That my thoughts are here and I'm here apart from my thoughts, although that may not seem to be obvious to you. We're not intimate with ourselves. We're not intimate with our true being. And we're certainly not intimate with anybody else in that regard. Although we practice that in our own ways. I mean, and, you know, we have ways of trying to be kind and compassionate and have connection and friendships and uh, other more intimate ways of being with our lovers or whatever that may mean. Um, But also there's a distance within those things. There's a duality within it. There's me being kind to you which is delusionary. And again, I've said this many times, more people have been killed in the name of kindness, in the name of religion, that I'm aware of at least, than any other reason. So, you know, the good justifies killing those who don't agree with me. Because, you know, this is holy, they're not. Well, that's as much of a separation as can be. 
And the results of that are obvious as we look in the world. In any case, koans are a very challenging way of asking us, of blowing up, if you will. You can't see into a koan from a deluded point of view. You can't see it. You have to see into it from an awakened point of view. And then what does not previously, what has not made sense makes complete sense. In fact, it makes so much sense that looking at it from the other way seems like it would cause a lot of suffering. So what is the truth of Zen? What are we doing practicing here? So one way to understand this koan of receiving this staff or having it taken away is within the context of what's happening within this order, the Mountains and Rivers Order. So right now, um, at the monastery, it's just being concluded, probably still in the midst because they run over, um, the Ango opening. And Ango is a a three-month period of intensified practice that people, students and non-students, make a commitment to enter. And there's some requirements to it. And uh, and this particular, particular Ango, one of the emphasis will be the invitation that the Beyond Fear of Differences group is going to extend to the Sangha. So I need to explain that. So we, as the Mountains and Rivers Order, and you, as this society, have a significant problem in case it's escaped your attention. We're not just racist. We're not just living in a society that's been set up for basically white Protestant men. And um, I fulfill two of those categories Um, from the beginning. We're not just um, have the whole rules of the game set up against anyone who doesn't fit certain images. And it's shot through from top to bottom. And you can, you can divide that up into all the isms and look at gender and sexuality and sexual preference and on and on and on and on. And there's no end to those divisions also. That should be respected. I mean, we can divide that up as well, as much as we want. But if, in fact, everywhere I look I see myself, the question I have to ask myself and I would hope you would ask yourself, is what are you going to do about this? So, you know, each of us have our own power, and each of us have our own ability and talents within our karmic presentation of this body and mind, and that applies organizationally, too. And keep in mind, there's no fundamentally, there's no such thing as organizations. There's only people in organizations. There's no such thing as corporations. There's no such thing as government. It's people. It's always the individual coming together collectively. So what does it mean to explore that we are all, all of us, imbued with these heavy, heavy, semi-visible at best cultural, I don't know what the appropriate word is, uh, cultural conditionings that take from some and give to others. 
And of course, some of that will always be there. It's got to be. The hierarchy is part of reality. But so what? This really sucks. It's not right. It is not right. And as an individual, I have to ask myself, as a Zen practitioner, what is my power? What can I do about it? As an organization and as a person of a white male person of power in that organization, I have to ask myself, what can we organizationally do? Which is, no, these are not small questions. And so part of what's going on here is um, that for the past number of years, a group, several groups have formed, a number of groups, but the group I'm pointing to now is called Beyond Fear of Differences. And it's a specific group that has explored uh, these differences. It's been a small group because you know how to do this? No, neither do we. Nobody knows how to do this. Because the conditioning, no matter what color or gender, etc., you are, is so heavy and so imbued within us, we don't see most of it. And we're deluded on top of that. So how do you do this? I mean, this is all in the relative world. You know, fundamentally, we all have Buddha nature. Nothing is lacking. In this relative world, not so much, perhaps or at least not acting out of so much. So the answer is we don't know how to do this. Nobody knows how to do this. But that can't stop us. So uh, that group has been meeting in various uh, presentations, initially here, then at the monastery, then back and forth, then so on and so forth. And now it's ready to come out of the closet. (laughs) Uh, It's ready to extend the work to the Sangha. And so that's about to happen at the monastery this afternoon. And that will happen next week here. So next week, we have Arango opening, or we observe Arango opening here, the temple on Sunday. It's at the conclusion of a three-day session, four, three-and-a-half-day session. So just a note that we'll be closed uh, from Thursday night to open Zazen through Saturday night. And Sunday we'll have the regular program. And at the end of the regular program, we'll have lunch. Uh, And perhaps you can guess what we'll serve at lunch, those of you who have been around a while. Um, And as part of that lunch, and towards the end of it, um, we'll present the invitation. Uh, We, it won't be me, me, but it'll be uh, people who have been an integral part of the Beyond Fear of Differences group from which the teachers are involved in, but step way back. Because from that perspective, we're just as involved, um, caught by the conditioning as anybody else. So don't miss that. That's important. Part of this investigation includes the use of power. These are subtle and difficult, and God, are they messy things to investigate. Don't kid yourself. No matter who you are, they are messy um, and painful. And, um, and so that extension will be in t- invited to you, to the Sangha, to consider uh, joining that. And there will be people there that will make that present- presentation um, 
So I'm mentioning that because that actually has a lot to do with this koan. Actually, it wasn't an accident that I chose this koan because that's what I wanted to talk about primarily, to invite you to that, because that's important. And I appreciate that if you're new to all this, it may be bewildering. Perhaps the question comes up, what does this have to do with Zen practice? I've tried to address that already. Nobody gets left out from Buddha nature, from the potential for awakening. When I see you, I see myself. What does that actually mean? That's great as a statement. But what does that actually mean? How does that actually function in the world? How does that live? And where does it not live? So where do I have that? In which case, I need a stick. And where do I don't have that? In which case, I need that taken away. So I hope you're beginning to see something here, even if you can't grasp it. It's not important that you grasp it. It's kind of like a virus in a computer, that it worms its way into your operating system and uh, has an effect. So this koan invites us to explore our attachments, our attachments to our thoughts and ideas. But going beyond that, to be open to our heart, and so we can begin to truly appreciate perspectives other than our own pretty fixed perspectives. You know, we've solidified them over the course of our lifetime. We've cemented them in. They're not quite hardwired. If they were, what are we doing practicing? But they're very real. Or we, we, they're actually not real, but we perceive them as real. Our sense of self. We perceive it. And what that means, I mean, those are words, but how that sense of self actually functions, we perceive as hardwired. It's not. And it comes down to how I as an individual, you as an individual, you in this body, this gender, this sexual preference, this sexual identity, the so-called race that you are labeled as, what think of yourself as, and all the other perspectives. How could we both see them and be free of them? I'm not saying ignore them. In any way, I'm not saying ignore them. Really, I'm asking how can we honor all of them, all of it, because it's all in me, and it's all in you. And to the extent that we deny that, we cause pain and suffering for ourselves and others. So suffering comes from gain and loss. We wish to have. We wish to not have. And in having, we want to possess, to own, to codify, to define, to understand. And in not having, we want to possess not having. I'm not that. I'm that. So either way, We're holding on with our whole body and mind. And pretty much it's built into the way we live. It's it's a given. So what do we actually need? A serious question. Is this the same as what we want? Needs are fundamental. Air, body, 
companionship, relationship, love in some way. Wants, not so sure they're fundamental. They're human. Sure we want. Desires are endless. The other part of that vow is I vow to put an end to them. Understanding we're never going to put an end to them, so it's a practice. So within the framework of this practice, the way to freedom is to consider as a possibility, a real possibility, that when we inquire, when we ask, seriously ask, that the question will reveal itself to us in a full way, in an unbounded way, that we can begin to truly understand, not intellectually, that's easy. That's the do-gooder that we all know so well. But to deeply understand, to deeply understand the question, and when we deeply understand the question, you know, the easiest thing to say you'll ha- is, if you deeply understand the question, you'll have the answer. And that's applicable in many ways. Uh, I'm saying that, but in a different way. When we deeply under- understand the question, we understand that the question and the answer are not different, which intellectually perhaps makes no sense. It makes no sense because we're bracketing the question from a self-perspective. Our re- point of reference is way too small. We're not really understanding the question and the context of the question. Is there any possibility of seeing, just seeing, and just witnessing what is within ourself? Imagine that. Imagine seeing your thoughts and feelings and just being with that. I don't mean as a justification, or this is right or wrong, or it's mine, so it's fine. But just seeing it. What does it mean to jest? Jest. I mean, what are we doing in Zazen? It's jest. So can we look? Can we listen? I mean, in this Beyond Fear of Differences work, how does a... How does a white man receive the point of view from a person of color and that any response I make to their pain and suffering, to them, they receive, and this is sometimes happening, I'm not speaking for everybody, but I'm speaking of specific incidents which come up over and over again, that the person of color receives as further pain coming out of my understanding of my position of power and the comment I'm making that's coming from that that I can't even see. I can't even begin to see. So I have to begin to take the person at their word that there's something they're experiencing that I'm really interested in that I have no idea about and probably, in a real sense, can never have an idea about. How does that make you feel? What does it take to get to that point where I'm even willing to entertain that as a baseline and not retreat into some kind of silence to protect myself, however so subtly, or because I don't want to hurt anybody? Those are in their own way legitimate. But it doesn't advance the exploration. It doesn't advance the understanding until I am completely exposed to myself. 
Do you have any idea how difficult that is? Have you been in that situation? If you're going to do Zen practice, you're going to be in that situation. Not in that context, necessarily, unless you choose to place yourself in that context. But when you face yourself, this is what you're facing. It's the unfaceable. It's, you don't have a clue, Mr., Mrs. Not a fucking clue. And what are you going to do about it? If you retreat into silence, you're betraying yourself. If you say something that comes from your perspective, you're hurting people. And they're telling you that. And it may be the first time that a person of color feels safe enough to actually tell you that because we're in a specific context. Now, you can look at this from many different perspectives, and I realize there are many different perspectives in this room and elsewhere, and I am not saying that this is for you, because I can't say that. I don't have the right to say that. That's more of the same shit, right? I'm just saying the way it is within the sangha and practice for some people as they try and explore the unexplorable. No cookbook, nobody knows how to do this. So this is a painful process. I don't think that covers it. We are, it's easy to be caught by ideas and words. So I know how easy it is to hear what I'm saying and to step back and criticize it. And if those voices don't occur to you in the course of this work, no matter who you are, then you're not listening to yourself. Because our first defense is defense, right? So we're going to criticize, protect. Isn't that interesting? We have many such voices, many voices that come from many places. And the confidence that I have in my own voices when they say things that I would, from other perspectives, consider to be self-protective and prejudiced and harmful, is that I've done enough zazen to know, don't believe everything you think, no matter how real it sounds, because it's imbued with my energy of me and my old protective habits that will never ultimately go away, but are recognizable more and more as just clouds. And sometimes from clouds, rain comes, and sometimes you can see right through them. So I'm speaking to you as student to student here, at least in these sentences, and offering what I can offer because nobody knows how to do this. Certainly I don't. But it does understand, it does help to understand suffering and to understand that suffering is distance. Distance within me from myself, protection. Distance from you distance from what you bring up that I have intrinsic reaction to, that I have trouble relating to, and so for you as well. But I want to study those things. You know why? I'm too afraid not to study them. You know, normally you'd think the other way. You're afraid to study them. But if I'm held by my vows to help all beings, which includes me, I'm 
too desperate. You know, if that's what I stake my life on, then I have to be prepared to... Being totally uncomfortable doesn't capture it. I mean, that's all of us doing zazen. To be totally lost, to be scared shitless, to be afraid, to understand that every time I open my mouth, I'm creating more harm in certain contexts, and to be responsible for that. That is some tough shit, man. That is some difficult stuff. And I am not an accomplished practitioner of that. But I do recognize that a thought is just a thought. And it's harmless unless it's believed. And that is enormous, that has enormous power. It's harmless unless it's believed. I can't stop what I think, but I can choose to believe it or not. So it's not our thoughts. It's our attachment to our thoughts that we're talking about here. It's our, you know, the fancy word is reification, taking those thoughts and making them real in more thoughts and more actions and deepening my conditioning. How do I do that? It happens instantly. And because of that, and because in that instant of happening, I have to rely on you. And I have to take refuge in the Sangha to help me here. Because I certainly can't do this by myself. Because I just don't have any clues. I don't know what it means to be gay. And I don't think I'm ever going to know. I don't know what it means to be a person of color. I don't know what it means to be a woman. I can intellectually manufacture knowing, but actually I don't. I'm still struggling to find out what it means to be a man. And funny that he, funny that he mentioned that, because when I look closely at what it means to be a man, what do I find? I find you. But I really have to be willing to look closely beyond any idea of what it means to be a man. And it doesn't belong to knowing or not knowing. So I've wandered way away from my prayer talk, <laughs> which is not a bad thing. And I have to finish it somehow. <laughs> so I'll skip. Moomun's comment. It helps you cross the river when the bridge is down. It accompanies you when you return to the, to the village on a moonless night. If you call it a stick, you will enter hell as fast as you can. As fast as an arrow. I've talked probably half a dozen times about my experiences at Zen Mountain Monastery, where I lived up the mountain and would walk up the hill, which is a meandering, somewhat meandering hill with ditches, deep enough ditches, not deep, deep, but deep enough that if you fall into it, you won't be happy. The ditches on the side. Um, and um, most nights, and I am not using a flashlight. So what kind of stupidity is this? Well, I didn't think it was stupid, and I still don't. Um, it was a challenge for me to let go of myself. And, um, and I would walk up the hill, and I, you know, visually, I knew the hill. I walked up and down it every time a day, every day, sometimes many times a day. And so I knew every curve and every, but I knew it visually mainly. And um, so if you shut off your flashlight, what do you get? You get various you know, intimidations of light, moon, 
starlight, reflections of light from below, sometimes a little bit of light from the cabins above if people are up there. Um, and then your night vision. And, you know, your night vision, you don't see directly. You know, when you, when you look at color, you're looking directly, but black and white and night vision is peripheral vision, right? So if you look at something in dark of night, you won't see it nearly as well as if you don't look at something and are taking that in. So it's very challenging to, to, to be that way, to, to look at that. Um, and, you know, I approached this as practice. And so how did I, I looked with my feet. I looked with my ears. I looked with inexpressible sense of looking. And, you know, I'd take a step because I was looking with my feet and I could feel the ground shift to, you know, towards the ditch and I'd come back and, you know, so on and so forth. And every time I made it to, the, to my cabin, to the top of the hill, uh, and it, it kind of struck me once when someone um, forgot their flashlight and went up the hill and they panicked. They got lost. Now, it's not easy to get lost up there. You know, the road basically goes in one direction. There are a couple of splits, uh, and the splits always go to cabins. You can always knock on somebody's door or wait, and someone's going to show. Uh, or if it's in the morning, coming down, go downhill, you know. Um, so, so it's not necessarily the external circumstances. that, And, and your mind does... That does come up when you're going up and you're feeling your way, and it's a different time because you just don't walk up the hill. You have to, every step you're sensitive to. But you don't know necessarily where you are. You just know where your foot is on the ground and where you feel. That's what you know. And you do it step by step. And yes, you have a goal, and you have to put the goal away because you can't get there from that goal. You can only get there step by step by step. This is called Zazen. And if you panic, you're gonna, now you're going to be lost. Your reference system has gone away because you're involved in your panic and your feelings and your fears. It helps you cross the river when the bridge is down. Now, I have to say, most nights, there was plenty of light. I mean, if there's a moon out, there's no problem. If there's snow on the ground, there's no problem. So... I was really most interested in those one or two nights per month when it's actually pitch dark. The others I was interested in, too. They're kind of fun. But this is different. Everything is taken away from you. And yet you find a way to proceed. What is that? How, how do you do that? This is your inherent perfection that's always there. No matter what the outer circumstances are. No matter what the outer circumstances are. You are home. And the only thing that can prevent you from being home is you yourself, your own fears, your own trapped conditioning, which is, feels so right because you've done it for 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60 years. So that's what you know. What don't you know? That's much more interesting. Helps you cross the river when the bridge is down. And it accompanies you when you return to the village on a moonless night. If you call it a stick, you'll enter hell as fast as an arrow. How can you be free of having and not having, of attachment 
and no attachment. You have to be free of no attachment, too. Well, when you're on that hill in pitch dark, it's just putting down that foot, and you know what to do. You, the foot is down, and you know automatically, without thinking about it, what to do. When you're sitting zazen and you take a breath, you take that breath. Where's the cookbook for that? Why would you need a cookbook for that? Well, well thoughts arise and I'm lost in my thoughts. That's the foot on the ground. It feels a little slanted. The ditch is there. Okay, let it go. Come back to your breath. Your practice is about your breath. Perhaps the counting associated with it. Perhaps she can toss. It doesn't matter what the, the specifics of your practice is about. You know what it's about. This Buddha Dharma does not lodge any place. It's not in this. It's not not in this. It doesn't fall into lodging here or there. It doesn't fall into understanding or not understanding. It doesn't fall into having or not having. So if you have, you're going to get a stick. If you don't have, you're going to get a stick. What's the stick? Who are you? How is it possible for you to have or not have? Uman's verse. The deep and the shallow, wherever they may be, are all in my hand. Do you understand? This is not just my hand. It's yours. What's in your hand? It sustains heaven and supports the earth and promises its end truth, wherever it may be. Grasping, holding, rejecting, refusing, are all suffering. Having or not having is self-centered, created from attachment, suffering. Do I have this staff or do I not have this staff? Is it mine or is it not mine? There's a crack in it, which, you know, this is the symbol of my transmission of the Dharma from Roshi. And, you know, it's a specific piece of wood that he chose. It's not accidental in its shape or size or dimensions. If you've ever seen Zuisei's, you'll get that because hers is slim and completely graceful. And (laughs) mine is not that. (laughs) I want hers. It's got a crack in it. I was horrified when it began to crack and desperately, you know, dunked it in beeswax oil and other things. Is it right, that crack, or is it wrong? Should it be there or should it not be there? It's all in our hands. It's always been in our hands. The question very clearly is, in one sense, so what? In another sense, what are you going to do about it? There's a lot of suffering in this world. We can't address all of the suffering in all circumstances. And we have to live our life within the context of our life. We have to take care of ourselves and our relationships and the people that we're responsible for. We have to do that. But how? With what wisdom? With what true compassion? Not some picture of compassion, not some idea of compassion. And who gets left out of that picture? And what is our personal power to do something about that? Those are things we can do. Thanks so much for listening. 
For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.